Okay. Good morning um, and welcome to today's lecture on the um, introduction to the politics and government of Germany. Um, just by way of a starting remark, um, I told you last week that I'm recording these lectures and I'm uh, putting them online as, as enhanced podcasts. Here's the website from which you can get it. Uh, it's http colon slash slash users.ox.ac.uk then tilde bush b-u-s-c-h and if you go to that website which you can also go to from the politics department staff section um, you will find a section on teaching and that'll give you the link from which you can download the lectures uh, directly onto your ipod uh, or into itunes so that you can enjoy um, uh, them again uh, in your spare time or if you suffer from insomnia um, or if um, revision time is upon you. Okay, with that said, um, let me start with today's lecture. Last week we looked at the constitutional founding of the Federal Republic and at the main institutions of the political system. Um, today I want to look at how these institutions relate to each other, what their balance of power is and so to speak um, and how, it, how this balance has changed over time. But I'm not going to spell out the functions uh, of each of these institutions in detail. Uh, I think that would be rather boring for you and that you can actually get that from a book much better than uh, from me. Um, a good overview that I recommend is the book by Jeffrey Roberts, uh, German Politics Today, which is Manchester University Press 2000. Um, and it gives you a good tour d'horizon of the main institutions, uh, of, but also of the party system, of interest groups, and of their influence on uh, policy making. Uh, it also mentions Germany's embeddedness into the institutions of the European Union. And last but not least, it um, gives you the context of politics in post-unification Germany. I recommend that to you, and um, you'll find the, the detail on today's handout, which I hope everybody has. Um, another book that I want to recommend warmly is the book by Manfred Schmidt uh, on the institutions of the Federal Republic. Manfred Schmidt is one of Germany's leading political scientists and we're very happy to have an English language uh, introduction from him. Or I should rather say it's less introductory, but it's a very thorough, so to speak, grown-up book on the political system and its institutions um, and I recommend it as well. And two more books that you may find interesting. One is the book on developments in German politics, and the other one is a volume on uh, governance in contemporary Germany that was published two years ago and um, is concerned with what uh, you may remember I mentioned last week, the semi-sovereign nature of the German political system. I will come back to that at the end of my lecture. Well, as I said in my lecture today, I want to focus on the interactions of the institutions of the German political system and my argument will be that this system is one with many centers of power. It's one with many centers of power. You could say it's a polycentric system in which several institutions compete with each other. Um, quite a contrast to say the United Kingdom um, in the system of government of which there is an exclusive power uh, in the center some people even say that there is an excessive centralization of power here in the United Kingdom. 
So we can expect substantial differences between the UK and the German systems of government, uh, even though both fall into the category of parliamentary government. Well, let me start with the characterization of the German system that you will most likely already have heard about, namely its designation as a chancellor democracy. This evokes parallels with the powerful position of a British prime minister, but I want to argue here that this is actually not a correct parallel to draw. The concept of chancellor democracy stems from journalistic descriptions of the 1950s, so the early stage of the Federal Republic, and it has often been cited but never actually received a stable basis in academic analysis. It was, of course, then coined for the way the system operated under Konrad Adenauer, Germany's first and long-serving chancellor, who held the reins of power for no less than 14 years. Uh, I'm sure Tony Blair would be impressed with that. Uh, Adenauer was chancellor from 1949 to 1963, the first 14 years of the Federal Republic. During that time, he shaped much of the German system of government and he wielded enormous influence over many policy decisions that proved critical for the development of the Federal Republic. But is the description of Chancellor democracy one of universal validity or is it only a correct shorthand for the specific period of the late 1950s? Let me discuss that by first focusing on the power resources of the office of the German Chancellor and then on the constraints that the holder of that office faces. A central strength of the Chancellor is conveyed by the Constitution. As you will remember from last week, um, Article 65 of the Basic Law states that, I quote, the Chancellor determines and is responsible for the general policy guidelines. There are some restrictions added in the same article, namely that um, independent conduct by individual ministers uh, within these guidelines is guaranteed and that there is a responsibility of the cabinet as a whole. But overall, the right to set the general policy guidelines gives the chancellor a strong position. Among the other factors that strengthen his position are the right to decide over the organization of the federal government, i.e. which ministers there shall be, and the right to pick the ministers. And in parentheses I add that it's the federal president who appoints the ministers, but he has no political right of refusal. So the chancellor suggests to the federal, uh, federal president that certain persons are appointed ministers. So the chancellor in fact appoints to the cabinet uh, the ministers and he will appoint people that he trusts. And these ministers do not have to be confirmed by parliament or any other institution in the political system. However, as we will see later, uh, we have to differentiate between the <coughs> de jure right to nominate ministers and the practical constraints uh, that any chancellor faces in that process. And lastly, the chancellor commands uh, the chancellor's office, which is an institution with a staff of about 500. <coughs> so it's of a substantial size and its mission is to coordinate and supervise the activities of the federal ministries and to help in medium and long-term policy coordination. 
the Chancellor's Office has so-called mirror units that trace the actions of each of the federal ministries and are thus always up to date on what is happening in the government. If it is used in the right way, this institution at the heart of the federal government can be a powerful instrument to guide and to control policy. Well, so far the strengths and the power resources of the German Chancellor, and lest you think that it was only Ardenauer here, I have a couple of pictures of his successors. What were their constraints on power? Here we can distinguish between the formal and the informal constraints. Among the formal constraints, uh, we have to count the power of the Bundestag to unseat the Chancellor by means of the so-called constructive vote of no confidence. This procedure is laid out in uh, Article 67 of the Basic Law, and you can find it, as I want to remind you on last week's handout. It draws the lessons of the deficiencies of the Weimar Republic. Back then, members of Parliament could often agree to unseat the present Chancellor, but they could not agree on a successor. Under the Basic Law, the only way for the Bundestag to get rid of a serving Chancellor is to elect a successor, that is the constructive vote of no confidence. And in case you wonder, uh, it has so far been used twice, once unsuccessfully in 72 against Willy Brandt, and once successfully when Helmut Kohl unseated Chancellor Schmidt in 1982. Another formal constraint on the power of the German Chancellor is that he is not free to pick the date of the next election, as it is the case in the United Kingdom, but there are fixed election dates in Germany, which is another way of saying that he has no competence to dissolve Parliament. More important than these formal constraints, however, are the informal constraints on the power of the Chancellor. They largely stem from the fact that governments in the Federal Republic, as a rule, are coalition governments. As a consequence, the Chancellor is somewhat circumscribed in the choice of personnel he appoints as ministers because the coalition parties want to have a say. <coughs> Similarly, in his own party, the Chancellor will have to accommodate the various streams and factions and also maintain a rough regional and denominational balance. The link between the Chancellor and his or her party is somewhat less close than, for example, in the UK. In Germany, the Chancellor need not be leader of the party that he is from, although he normally or often is. Adenauer and Kohl are examples of chancellors that were leaders of their party throughout their chancellorship. But Helmut Schmidt, for example, never was. And Gerhard Schröder resigned the chairmanship of the Social Democrats a year, uh, two years ago, uh, or a year before he um, uh, left office, um, while he stayed on as chancellor. This is a sort of loser coupling between the chancellor and the party, and it can both be a power resource and a constraint depending on the circumstances. Here I have a picture of the present German chancellor, Angela Merkel, Germany's first woman chancellor, and I should add that she also holds the chairmanship of her party, the Christian Democratic Union. 
Lastly, in terms of policy, the Chancellor has again to take into account the wishes of the coalition partners and to a considerable extent those of the Bundesrat, the chamber of the lender in Germany's federal system. Here again, he is far from completely independent in practice. <coughs> Let me conclude my description of the chancellorship by saying that the German chancellor is undoubtedly an important figure uh, in the political system. But that he is, as a rule, not in a position that would allow the labeling of it as a chancellor democracy. Too numerous are the constraints on his or her actions, <coughs> on the decisions and the personnel choices. Too clear is the decentralization of power in the German political system. And I'll come back to that later in the lecture. However, the chancellorship has significant powers under certain circumstances. The 1950s, when the system was set up, was such a situation. But so was the period leading up to unification of Germany, when Chancellor Kohl was clearly dominant. So one could sum it up by saying, Chancellor democracy? Normally not. But under exceptional circumstances, yes. If the position of the Chancellor, as I've just said, generally speaking, weakened after the initially strong 1950s, one could say that the position of the Bundestag, the federal parliament, uh, was strengthened in the period since. The slide shows you pictures of the old Bundestag in Bonn on the left and the new one in Berlin in the Reichstag building that they moved into in 1999. Let me again start with a rough categorization. Max Weber famously distinguished among parliaments between so-called debating chambers and working chambers. If the British House of Commons is the ideal type of the former, the debating chamber, and the US Congress is the ideal type of the latter, the working chamber, the Bundestag falls som somewhere in between but is probably closer to the working chamber. This is not least due to the important role committees play in the working of the Bundestag. If the Bundestag is assessed to be a relatively powerful parliament, which means that it is one with considerable degrees of freedom uh, towards the executive, then this is to a considerable degree due to the role that its committees play. For the Bundestag has many powerful committees which put substantial work into acquiring information uh, in order to evaluate legislative proposals and scrutinize government performance. Many MPs serve on their respective committees for many parliaments, which allows them to acquire a high degree of specialization in their chosen area of expertise. This facilitates both the evaluation of legislative proposals and the scrutiny of government action. Indeed, just how much work goes into this specific action, I can illustrate with a few figures. In the first 50 years of the existence of the Bundestag, between 1949 and 1998, there were 2,935 no, 2 plenary sessions. 
That number, however, is completely dwarfed if you look at the number of committee meetings during the same period. There were no less than 28,407 committee meetings, or almost 10 times as many as plenary sessions. If you happen to visit a plenary session of the Bundestag or watch it on TV, you may well see only a fraction of the MPs attending that debate. But it would be wrong to conclude uh, from this that the others are idle. It's much more likely that they will attend committee meetings elsewhere and committee meetings, as a rule, are not open to the public. The long-term tenure of MPs in committees that I mentioned has a number of consequences. On the one hand, as I said, they become quite expert in their chosen field, uh, be it as members of the powerful finance committee, for example, that has to approve all government spending, um, on the environment committee, or on that on defense or on foreign affairs. There is one committee shadowing the work of each of the presently 13 federal ministries. Expertise in a policy area is often rewarded by becoming speaker uh, on the subject for the parliamentary party or, if the party is in government, by becoming a minister or a junior minister uh, in this field. As a result, not least of these incentives, but above all of the structures, the dominant type of politician in Germany is often the specialist rather than the generalist. Somebody who can say a lot about a limited area rather than somebody who can say a bit about everything. The other consequence is that politicians who often work much of their time in committees become quite well acquainted uh, with their counterparts from the other parties. And this results in much more cooperative working relations than is the case uh, in parliaments where, where there is an exclusive uh, um, logic of uh, the government party versus the uh, opposition party. As a consequence, the outlook of politi uh, on political problems, also in plenary sessions of the Bundestag, is often rather less than adversarial, even if there are, of course, differences of opinion. But the compromises often agreed upon in committees, the cooperative <coughs> solutions, carry through to a comparatively high degree of bills that are passed with majorities bigger than that of the current government. In the first parliament of the Federal Republic, between 1949 and 53, no less than 86% of all bills passed with the unanimous support of the Christian Democrats and the then main opposition party, the Social Democrats. If at, time, uh, if at that time observers often thought that this was mainly due to the fact that a devastated country had to be rebuilt, which doesn't allow for too much partisan disagreement, they soon had to think again. For this high degree of unanimity remained a feature even if the figure went down slightly and the long-term average now is about 66% of all bills that are passed unanimously or nearly unanimously. Two-thirds of all the bills are passed unanimously or nearly unanimously. To sum this up, we can say that the Bundestag, through mechanisms of deliberation and own initiative, has considerably more power to scrutinize government proposals for legislation 
than, say, the House of Commons has. In addition to procedural differences, this is also, and not least, due to resources. After all, each member of the Bundestag has resources to employ, on average, two researchers in addition to secretarial staff. And the parliamentary groups also have considerable resources at their disposal. Altogether, some 800 people work for them. This substantial manpower allows the parliamentary party, or parties, especially when they are in opposition, to build up considerable policy expertise, which goes at least some way to balancing uh, the uh, government's natural uh, advantage of having the whole administrative bureaucracy at its disposal. These resources for the Bundestag were not always there. They were the result of parliamentary reforms um, uh, largely uh, after 1969. It is through reforms like these that the Bundestag has strengthened its position in the German political system and is very much the center of political decision-making, as Klaus von Weimer has labeled the Bundestag in his exhaustive recent study, The Legislator, which I recommend to you if you have an interest in details of how the Bundestag works. But as you know, the Bundestag is only one of the two chambers of the German parliament. The other one is the representation of the Länder, the Bundesrat. So in a way, you can compare it to the US Senate. But while the Senate is composed of directly elected representatives from each state, um, the Bundesrat is composed of representatives of the Länder governments. When the basic law was drawn up in 1949, the committee of experts that uh, provided drafts drafted two different solutions. One was a Senate model along the lines of the United States. The other was the Bundesrat model that was later implemented. The Parliamentary Council thus decided in favor of historical precedent because what has been called executive federalism had a tradition in Germany since the 1871 constitution of the Bismarckian Reich. I will say uh, more about this in the lecture on federalism later in this term. Let me only point out now that uh, in the strict sense of the word, the Bundesrat is not a parliamentary chamber because each Land's grouping of delegates has to vote as a group and in accordance with their regional government's uh, instructions. Delegates can and usually are therefore represented by civil servants to do the work and voting on their behalf. If politically contentious issues uh, are to be decided, however, it's very likely that the minister-presidents themselves will come to the chamber and argue their point of view. However, as there is no free vote for the delegates, who have to vote unanimously, as I said, the Bundesrat often acts more as a stage for the opinion uh, or opinions of the lender governments. One battleground in the debates about the basic law was the extent to which the Bundesrat should have influence on federal level legislation. The Social Democrats insisted in the Parliamentary Council that the Bundesrat uh, should only have a restricted right of veto over policy, while the CSU insisted that the Bundesrat have a substantial say in federal affairs. The Bundesrat has a say in two sorts of laws, so-called simple laws in which it has a delaying power 
but nothing more, and so-called consent laws uh, on areas which touch the issues assigned to the states in the Constitution where Bundesrat support is needed. While the Constitution was, when the Constitution was drawn up, the intention was that the former category, the simple laws, um, would be the vast majority of cases and that Bundesrat consent would only be needed for a few issues. In fact, however, as the Bundestag has appropriated more and more powers of the regional legislatures, the Bundesrat has been called on more and more to give its consent to bills, largely over questions of implementation of the laws, uh, which is, of course, the province of the states and therefore a central issue for the Bundesrat. The number of consent bills has therefore gone up to about 60% of the total number of bills, uh, about twice of what it was initially. Thus the power of the Bundesrat as an institution, uh, bargaining with central government and its ability to block government proposals has increased in the last 30 years or so. <coughs> Besides being the representation of the lender uh, interest, the Bundesrat of course also has a party political side to it. That side became really evident only in 1969, 20 years into uh, the Federal Republic's existence, when the SPD-FDP government took over. Before then, the government, governing coalition of the Bundestag also had a majority in the Bundesrat. But after 69, this was no longer true, and the Bundesrat developed into a political opponent of the government. And again, I will come back to that in the lecture on federalism. Let me conclude by saying that with both the Bundestag and the Bundesrat, an increased independence of identity and action can clearly be seen from the 1960s onwards, which had been largely absent from German national politics during the heyday of Chancellor democracy of the 1950s. But they are not the only institutions that have risen up as counterweights to the Chancellor's office. The basic makeup of the German political system is as follows. Legislative power is in the domain of the lender unless it is explicitly reserved for the federal government. Federal legislation should thus only take place in explicit enumerated areas. In fact, the central government has, over time, um, ousted the regions from almost all areas of policy, a development that has been labeled as that towards a unitary federal state. The two areas in which the states still have autonomy are education, which includes higher education, and the police, and both are treasured by them and are jealously guarded. But the states have another power with respect to the central government and one that they have used with considerable effect. That relates to the powers that they have under Article 83, namely to execute federal law autonomously. These administrative competences give federalism in Germany its bite, for there is hardly any federal administration outside the capital. Each federal ministry in Germany has the same four-tiered organizational structure, uh, which makes central coordination even within a ministry hard. As a consequence, most civil servants are employed by the regions and lower down by the municipalities. In total, about 90% of civil servants are employed outside of central <coughs> government. In areas such as law and order, the administration of justice, 
uh, in education, local government, social and welfare, state, uh, welfare services, transport and public utilities. The functions are exercised by regional and local level civil servants. In practice, the areas in which regions have autonomy over tasks has shrunk, and the areas over which regions have been delegated tasks to manage has increased. Nevertheless, the central point is that the central government in Germany does not have its own bureaucracy in many key areas, and it therefore has to rely upon the cooperation of the regional bureaucracies. A country such as France is conventionally thought of as highly centralized, by which it is largely meant that a huge bureaucracy has sprouted from the executive offices uh, of the president and prime minister over time. In Germany, the federal fragmentation of bureaucracy remains, in principle, a major break on the administrative strength of central government. One of its main effects is to promote some regional variations in public policy, most notably in the area of education, where regional policies differ widely. Well, so far we have seen the Bundestag and the Bundesrat, and then the legislative and administrative powers of the lender, and that they have to some extent counterbalanced the Chancellor-centric view of power in the Federal Republic. But there is another institution that has asserted itself in a manner that was certainly not foreseen upon its inception after the Second World War, namely the Constitutional Court. Traditionally, the most active and powerful constitutional court is considered to be the American Supreme Court. But some commentators now suggest that the German constitutional court is the most active and powerful in Europe. Like the US Supreme Court, the court has jurisdiction over boundary disputes between institutions, so between the government and the Bundestag, the Bundestag and the Bundesrat, and between the Land level and the federal level. The court also takes cases from lower courts when these courts decide that a case arising from a law is in contravention of the Constitution. But unlike the American Supreme Court, it is not a court of appeal uh, in civil and criminal cases. That, in Germany, is the responsible responsibility of the Federal Appeals Court. But the court again unlike the US Supreme Court, does have the power of what is called abstract norm review, under which the constitutionality of a law can be reviewed without involving a particular case. The scope of issues that falls within the jurisdiction of the Federal Constitutional Court is therefore very large. A more informal source of the court's power is that the constitution is based upon abstract general principles that require constitutional interpretation. For example, something like the, f the right uh, to free development of the personality. So it's a constitution that necessitates a court to make further binding decisions in concrete cases. In terms of the sheer quantity of decisions, it's difficult to ignore the federal constitutional court as well. On average, the court has decided well over 1,600 cases a year since 1951. But more importantly, the court has pushed itself onto the political stage since the beginning of the 1960s through a number of controversial decisions. In the 1950s, the court has proven 
to be a strong defender of moderation and democratic stability in the Federal Republic when it ruled that two parties, one on the far right and the other communists, uh, were, were, were illegal as their purposes and goals were incompatible uh, with those of uh, the Constitution. At other times, however, it has directly impinged upon the ability of chancellors to get their way in certain issues. In 1961, for example, Adenauer's attempt to create a second nationwide state television network under the control of the federal authorities was blocked by the court, uh, which found that a centralized network would encroach upon the lender uh, uh, exclusive jurisdiction over cultural policy. But it would be wrong to suggest that the court has always been hostile just to conservative governments, quite to the contrary. Uh, Thirteen years later, the SPD's legislation making abortion easier was ruled unconstitutional. The judgment here remarkably cited the Nazi legacy in Germany as a reason why the right to life had to be protected more strongly in West Germany than in other European countries. More recently, the court has been uh, involved in two landmark decisions in the foreign policy field. The first in October 1993 ruled that the Maastricht Treaty was not in conflict with the basic law, though it warned that further development of the European Union might well prove incompatible with the Constitution. And the second one in July 1994 set aside the commonly held view that the, con the, that the Constitution prohibited the use of German troops in areas outside the NATO, uh, NATO territory for reasons other than those of self-defense. Rather, the court held the Constitution did not prohibit the use of troops as part of collective security operations as was proposed by the United Nations uh, in Bosnia. The court's independence has been reinforced, as in the United States Supreme Court, by the high regard in which it is held by the German population. It has also become more activist and increasingly uh, at the center of attention as a result of unification in 1990, um, because there was a great need to reconcile East German and West German law, um, and also inconsistencies and teething problems uh, stemming from the rapid reintegration of the two parts uh, had to be resolved. Nevertheless, as with the US court again, uh, the appointment of justices to the court has become an increasingly controversial process of power uh, as the power of the court uh, has increased. Partisan sympathies certainly can be observed in the judgments of individual justices, but not in too systematic a way and none that has undermined the court's legitimacy and broad acceptance. So, the conventional political institutions, the legislature, the court, and the bureaucracy have all been important constraints on the federal uh, government of the uh, Federal Republic. But as a distinctive additional element to the Federal Republic, um, there is a set of institutions that the American political scientist Peter Katzenstein has termed parapublic institutions. Parapublic institutions. These institutions cannot be said to belong to the core parts of the state uh, in the way that the Bundestag or the bureaucracy does. Nor can they be said to be private bodies in the same way that 
um, a trade union or an employer association or a birdwatching club are. Rather, they lie somewhere in between. What are these parapublic institutions? They are bodies organized under public law, carrying out important function under a sort of arm's length supervision by the state. Examples include the Chambers of Industry and Commerce, who control a variety of economic activities in the regions such as training workers, professional associations such as doctors' associations, radio stations, and universities. Katzenstein captures their ethos uh, as the following, and I quote, the independent governance by the representatives of social sectors at the behest of or under the general supervision of the state. Put briefly, West Germany's parapublic institutions merge public and private bureaucracies. From our point of view, where we are interested in the changing balance of power between the Chancellor's Office and other institutions, one of the important characteristics of these institutions is that they often have independent status in German law. In other words, they are recognized by the law, they have rights, and they can claim those rights if the government tries to interfere with them. This independent legal standing offers a strong limitation on any government which wishes to recast the institutional landscape in the way that, for example, uh, uh, Prime Minister Thatcher did in the United Kingdom during the 1980s. And the Schroeder government uh, a couple of years ago had certainly to learn that um, uh, um, not, not exactly to its great pleasure. A prominent example of such a parapublic institution is the German Central Bank, the Bundesbank. The Bundesbank has always been independent of government. And if that fashion has recently spread to other countries like France, Britain, and many others, um, it is not to no small extent the Bundesbank's example that has uh, prompted this. But where other countries have arrived only recently, the Bundesbank has been since the early 1960s. It is not supervised by any ministry, and it is exempted from the guidelines which the Federal Chancellor gives at the beginning of each new Bundestag. What is the reason for this independence? The essential idea is that it is in the interests of all Germans to have a central bank that is free from the pressures of central government in order to enable it to accomplish its primary task, namely keeping inflation low. If the government could influence the central bank, it would be tempted to undermine stability and consistency to try to get re-elected. Every time elections come around, for example, governments might have an interest in a looser monetary policy in order to increase growth and employment. Though this might help to win the election, the cost would be increased inflation uh, shortly afterwards. Governments, in short, have all sorts of reasons to interfere in monetary policy, many of which would have a damaging effect on monetary policy itself. Removing the bank from direct democratic control therefore has the effect that government is severely constrained. Its hands are tied in one of the key areas of economic policy, namely monetary policy. But constraints can be beneficial, and the general recognition of this fact explains that central bank independence, as I said, has spread to so many countries over the last uh, uh, decade and a half. 
Since Germany joined the European Monetary Union in 1999, the Bundesbank's role has obviously diminished since it now is the European Central Bank which decides and conducts monetary policy. But the president of the Bundesbank sits on the board of the ECB and the ECB itself is very much modeled on the Bundesbank model. So while the Bundesbank's importance has gone down, nothing has changed for the German government, which has still to deal with a rivaling center of power that determines monetary policy even if that parapublic institution is now a supranational uh, one rather than a national one. Another example of a parapublic institution would be the institution set up to privatize the East German state-owned economy after unification, the Treuhandanstalt, or literally trustee agency. This was an unparalleled task, and it is testament to the importance of parapublic institutions to the German political system that such an institution was set up to deal with the task rather than handed over to the Ministry of Economics. And the Treuhandanstalt was characterized by the three hallmarks of parapublic institutions. A, it granted privileged access to the country's highly centralized economic and social interest groups as well as regional governments. B, it was able to amass a high level of expertise much more than would have been present in a federal ministry, and C, it enjoyed a high degree of autonomy in policymaking, which led to it being called by some observers an East German shadow government. But in exchange, the great value for the federal government was that this institution acted as a shock absorber, and it deflected the ire of the political controversy from the government, it became a political lightning conductor, so to say. These examples illustrate the importance of parapublic institutions for the operation of the Constitution and for policymaking in Germany more generally. Parapublic institutions provide stability and link different institutions within the state. They also bridge institutions of state and social groups, and they blur the, the clear lines between the state and society that characterized traditional politics elsewhere. But their independence from the state has also had the effect of limiting the ability um, of more reformist or radical politics uh, to enact swift, wide-sweeping changes. In other words, parapublic institutions can clearly be seen to be at the root of both the conservatism and stability, uh, two of the great hallmarks of politics in the Federal Republic. Peter Katzenstein, who coined the phrase semi-sovereign state for the German system, points to the contrast in Germany between the way the state is organized and the way social groups are organized. In the Federal Republic, the state is decentralized and fragmented between competing institutions. The state is decentralized and fragmented between competing institutions. But social groups such as trade unions, employers, professional groups, etc., etc., are highly organized and have a strong central leadership. Again, think of a contrast between a country such as France or the UK. In Britain, the British cabinet enjoys immense autonomy from other institutions at the center and can limit the powers 
of local governments reasonably easily. But employers and unions are relatively weak, at least relatively decentralized um, and unorganized. Quite the reverse is true in Germany. Indeed, commentators often suggest that real power in the German system lies with these highly organized central groups rather than with the government. And this should make you think of one of the central ironies of politics, namely that it is not synonymous with government. A lot of politics is removed from the formal institutions of government, and much of the most interesting changes in politics are effected by groups rather than government, which is a cumbersome institution to change. Let me finish by saying that the German constitution has seen a period of strong centralizing chancellorship under Adenauer, followed by a drift towards multiple centers of power in the 1960s and 1970s. In the 1990s, unification again provided an example for strong central government. The fact that there have been such contrasting distributions of power between the key German institutions in the Federal Republic uh, and its relatively short history uh, dispels a common claim, namely that the Constitution somehow determines the main processes of politics. Certainly the Constitution has influenced the balance of power, but there have been ebbs and flows, and there continue to be ebbs, ebbs and flows in power. So rather than seeing a Constitution as a mold which shapes political activity, it's much more helpful to think of constitutions as a set of incentives and constraints for, individual, uh, for individuals and institutions to act in certain ways, but which allows them scope to innovate and to compete with other co institutions. In short, politics is much more dynamic than a strong constitutional-centered study of politics would suggest. Thank you very much.